The seas are getting crowded. As commercial use of the ocean accelerates exponentially and climate change impacts worsen, marine ecosystems and coastal communities are feeling unprecedented pressures. The ocean has been a source of food. It facilitates our modern communication, transports our merchandise, and is often perceived as a lawless new economic frontier. Today's guest expands on the new ocean reality and proposes that the ocean may not be as lawless as we think and that we need to ramp up investment and stewardship of the vast waters that are giving us so much. My name is Annette Hertwig. Welcome to the Resilience Hub's COP27 special podcast series on Rethink Talks. Jean-Baptiste Jouffre. I'm a researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Center uh, at Stockholm University, where my work focuses mostly on the interlinked social, economic, and ecological challenges uh, that shape the new global ocean context. So in a way, it's about trying to make sense of the new ocean reality by understanding what the Anthropocene mean for the ocean, but also what the ocean mean for the Anthropocene. So it's kind of the two dimension of, of the same question. And of course, new reality of the ocean means who benefits from it as we are rapidly expanding or use of it. Where are those benefits distributed and where are the harms distributed as well, which links very much to the notion of resilience, including for, for coastal communities, which are all often at the forefront of some of the impact of climate change that we're observing. I mentioned a new ocean reality. Uh, why I'm saying that is, I mean, humans have always used the ocean uh, for millennia, uh, certainly as a source of food, as a mean of transports for ideas, for settlement. But what we're observing over the past few decades is a dramatic acceleration in human use of the ocean. And this can be summarized for like three or four fundamental needs for humanity, right? It's the ocean for food, it's the ocean for energy, it's the ocean for material, and it is the ocean for space. And of course, ocean space is needed for the three first categories that I described, right? You need ocean space to get food from the ocean, energy, and also materials. And so what we're seeing is a exponential growth in most of those sectors across a variety of industries. If I give you a couple of examples, for instance, of that acceleration, well, over the past 20 years only, uh, nearly 1 million kilometers of cables have been laid on the seafloor, and together they account for 99% of international telecommunication. So when we speak now, it's actually going through undersea cables, and only 1% of international telecommunication rely on satellite communication. So we're really dependent on undersea cables. Um, the offshore wind uh, as a renewable energy has increased 500-fold over the past 20 years. The shipping sector, uh, maritime transport, that accounts for 80% of global trade by volume, 70% uh, 
by value, well, that has quadrupled over the past 20 years only as well. And I could go on and on with examples in the seafood sector, in the communication, in the mining, we're issuing licenses for deep sea mining. So there is that appetite and that vision that the ocean is the new economic frontier and uh, the future engine of human development. What are the consequences of seeing the ocean as the new economic frontier? I think the idea here is that all those activities take a toll on the environment, certainly. And there's also issues of equity and benefit sharing, right? If there is a race to the ocean, the question is, well, who's benefiting from that race or, or rather who's left behind? And so as commercial use of the ocean accelerates and climate change impacts worsen, what we're seeing is that marine ecosystems and the communities who depend on them the most face unprecedented cumulative impressures and the emergence of new interconnected risk. So another way to look at it is that as the more uh, industries are expanding into the ocean, the more interactions and conflicts are happening among users that are also intensifying as the ocean space become more crowded. So those, those are few of the challenges that, that we have to deal with when we consider this new ocean reality. This view that the ocean is often perceived as a vast ungoverned space, uh, as like the last uh, lawless frontier where bandits roam the seas and there is no enforcement, there is no regulation in particular in what is referred to as the areas beyond national jurisdiction. So each coastal countries have some kind of jurisdiction extending 200 nautical miles from the coastline. That's what's called the exclusive economic zones. And beyond that exclusive economic zones lie the high seas um, or the international waters to, to some extent. And, and there is this view that this is ungoverned and therefore we can't do anything. And I would call that a misconception because I think it might be poorly governed. Uh, it might be a patchwork of governance of different institutions or bodies, but it's certainly governed. It's not left like that without any kind of governance. If, if I take the example of the United Nations only, in the UN alone, you have more than 20 uh, different bodies that are vested with some kind of normative or regulatory competence related specifically to the high seas. So that's to say that it's, it's not left on its own. It's not a lawless area. There certainly is um, governance happening. Now, it, it might be difficult to enforce and it might be difficult to monitor. So it's far from the eyes. It's very remote. Uh, I mean, the ocean covers 70% of the surface of the planet. So it's, it literally is very vast and difficult to monitor. And even though we can make progress in monitoring, and we've seen that recently when it comes to satellite monitoring of some activities taking place in the high seas, not least fishing vessels uh, using new technologies and satellite imagery. It's one thing to monitor, but it's another one to enforce rules. And, and that's yet another step to be taken. And so in that sense, maybe that's where the misconception comes from. It's, it's not... Uh, by default of not trying, but it's maybe by default of not succeeding in actually governing or enforcing regulation. One of the consequences I can think of of that narrative is that the ocean is subsequently perceived as very risky to invest in. An example of that would be Sustainable Development Goal 14, Life Below Water, which of all SDGs, if you look at the, the, 
the funding going to the SDGs from 2015 to 2019 is the least financed goal of all. And by far, one study estimated that achieving the targets of SDG 14 would require roughly $175 billion a year. And if you look at the total sum that SDG 14 has received over the past five years, it's roughly 10 billion together. So we're far off what we need to achieve SDG 14. The same way, less than 1% of the total value of the ocean economy has been invested in sustainable systems. So you're seeing here an ocean finance gap like that needs to be bridged by merging public and private finance, maybe to in support of a sustainable ocean economy. Where that ocean finance gap can itself be seen maybe as a misconception is because it really focuses on sustainable investment and sustainable finance. But if you go back to what we discussed earlier, which is that rapid acceleration across a whole range of sectors, what we named the blue acceleration, well, all those sectors need capital and they need finance to be on those exponential growth trajectories. So there certainly is finance entering the ocean economy today. It's just that it's not necessarily linked to sustainable investment. And so maybe that's one avenue to reflect on going forward. How can we ensure that the trillions of dollars that are fueling the ocean economy today are actually contributing to a truly blue, uh, and by that I mean not just sustainable, but also equitable uh, ocean economy and not just business as usual. We take for granted that blue acceleration, that's what the data shows us globally, at a global scale, rapid exponential increase across a whole range of sectors. Now, if we zoom in on uh, least developed countries, together with small island developing states like the seeds, which, which are alternatively referred as large ocean nations because they might be small islands, but in, in effect, they have often a really big area of sovereignty on the ocean and they depend a lot on the ocean. So you could expect some of those countries to really be at the forefront of some of those development. Well, then the figures are striking. 500-fold increase in offshore wind farm globally, 0% of that in seeds or LDCs. 13,000 marine genetic sequences that have been patented, 0.03% of that are coming from institutions located in those countries. Marine aquaculture, the world's fastest food production sector, 0.09% of that production is occurring in those countries. And that could go on uh, with different sectors and different claims. I guess you get, <laughs> you get the, the dynamic and the pattern here is that, yes, there is a global blue acceleration, but who benefits from it is far from being global as well. We looked at cooperation in particular. So what are the companies that are involved in those ocean industries? And what we saw is that a small number of corporations headquartered in an even smaller number of countries generate most revenues from ocean-based industries. So if you aggregate across what the OECD traditionally define as the eight core ocean-based industries, then the 100 largest corporation, uh, what we call the Ocean 100, they account for 60% of total revenues. That's $1.1 trillion. So it's highly consolidated in the hands of a few very large corporations. And if you look at the country level, well, half of all revenues of that $1.1 trillion end up in just seven countries. The USA, Saudi Arabia, China, Norway, France, the UK, and South Korea. What you're seeing here 
between the line is a dominance of the oil and gas industries because today it is the largest ocean-based industry. We talked about finance a little bit. We talked about that ocean finance gap. Well, we need to bridge that gap. And that means we really need to enable capitals to flow into those sustainable projects. The, the same way as those numbers are striking in terms of seeds and LDCs versus highly industrialized countries, well, some of those countries need financial support to develop that infrastructure, right? Developing offshore wind, developing offshore farming or offshore aquaculture takes capitals and we need the seeds and we need the funding to do that. that that's bridging the, the ocean finance gap. At the same time, I think it's really important to, to keep in mind that financial actors and finance not only has an enabling role, and that would be the bridging of, of the ocean finance gap, but it also has a gatekeeping role. Like financiers can act as gatekeepers by redirecting finance and deciding what to finance and under which condition. So here, an obvious example is, should we keep investing in offshore oil and gas extraction if we're truly aligned with a sustainable and equitable ocean economy, like a blue economy? Well, then oil and gas probably doesn't fit in that narrative, right? Yet there are trillions of dollars uh, provided by the financial sector to the oil and gas industries. And I could take other sectors as examples. So here, the notion is redirecting finance where it matters and aligning it with sustainability criteria. Now, all of that uh, won't happen just on a voluntary basis. So I think it's, it's too easy to look at the supply chain. I say, oh, it's the responsibility of financiers or oh, it's the responsibility of governments or oh, there needs to be um, civil society pressure and, and consumer awareness. I think accelerating ocean stewardship, because what we're talking about really is stewardship of the ocean, given that new reality and given that context, requires a collective and collaborative effort across the entire value chain. And that means from businesses, the private sector and their financiers, to governments, policymakers, regulators, certainly the scientific community, um, but also civil society groups, right? And so it's by moving the needle across those different groups that together, I think, we can really accelerate changes. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Hub's COP27 podcast series on Rethink Talks. This season is a collaboration between the Stockholm Resilience Center and the Resilience Hub. We will release new podcast episodes throughout COP27, and we invite you to listen to additional episodes and previous seasons on rethink.com.